Merry Christmas. It has come to that time where we can say Merry Christmas and we're not saying it early. Um, When I was a kid, I was very confused because there were 12 days of Christmas, right? I knew that because there was the song on the first day of Christmas, partridge in a pear tree, so on and so forth. But I couldn't figure out where the, I couldn't figure it out. And then I was older, and I'm sure, I don't want to be very clear, I'm sure I was probably told this as a child, I just didn't stick into my child head. But later I learned that Christmas actually starts on December the 25th and lasts for 12 days until Epiphany, January the 6th. That's Christmas tide. That's a, a season. And so truthfully, we should not be going about with Merry Christmas on our lips not because Scrooge will boil us in our own pudding and stick a sprig of holly in our heart, uh, but because it's not Christmas yet. Not for 25 more minutes, 35 more minutes. I can read a clock. But we wish each other a Merry Christmas anyway. And so tonight we join a long line of Christ followers who have, for centuries, for millennia, remembered the arrival of God through the birth of his son, Jesus. As I said earlier, I I just feel that for some reason this year, maybe more than others, many of us need to be reminded of the wonder of this night and of the hope, peace, joy, and love that the Christ child ushers into our busy, hectic, distracted, and chaotic lives. You know, it's been interesting this year to watch people grab hold of Christmas in a way they have not for several years. Maybe it's we're finally finally post-COVID in a certain kind of sense. We don't have people standing over us telling us that that if we get together with our family at Christmas, everyone is going to die. But I think it's because we're tired. After two years of that, we're ready for some light. And we're ready for some hope and peace and joy and love. But here's the thing, we, we, we've spent the last four weeks, right, talking about those four things, starting with hope and then going to, to peace and then to joy and then to love. We started with those things, and those are all wonderful things, and they're all part of the gift of Christmas. But they're a part of it. You know, Amanda had this wonderful idea to, to put the Advent wreath on the altar table. And it makes perfect sense because this is, this is what it's about, right? And if we're talking about the heart of Christmas, let's put what it's about in the middle. But as we light hope and peace and joy and love, they aren't in the middle, are they? They aren't in the heart of the wreath. What's in the heart of the wreath? The Christ candle. And so we come after looking at these four wonderful things that are wonderful gifts that are a part of what Christmas is all about, we come tonight to the heart of the matter, to the, to the real point, which is 
Christ. You know this. You know that I love all of the trappings of Christmas. I love everything about it. I love the lights. I love the movies. I watched a Christmas story this afternoon while I was wrapping gifts. We were watching It's a Wonderful Life before I had to pause it halfway through. If you're wondering where we are, George and Mary have just gotten married. I love the music. Today, I've listened to everything from the Christmas album, from the Tijuana Brass, to Punk Goes Christmas. I'm having a hard time thinking of something too more disparate than those two. But I love Christmas. By the way, just for the record, if you like Christmas carols, done straight, but done in covers, Bad Religion's Christmas album is a punk Christmas album in which they are just straight, plain covers of the Christmas, of the Christmas carols, and they are wonderful. No playing with them, no ju- just playing them. Breakneck punk rock speed. You may have noticed tonight there was a theme to the carols. Did you notice? All about angels. We'll get to that in a moment. But you know that I enjoy all of this. After all, I own this coat for a reason, right? One of the reasons I get us to wear ugly Christmas sweaters every year for Christmas Eve is so I have an excuse to wear my jacket. One of the reasons that I love Christmas so much is because I have great memories of Christmas. Sometimes it was just the three of us, just me and mom and dad. And those Christmases were great. And sometimes, sometimes I, I remember going up to, to Alabama, to, to Prattville, to see my mom's parents um, a couple of days before Christmas, we'd be there for a couple of days and, and travel home late on Christmas Eve. It'd be dark. Of course, at that time of year, right, it gets dark at like, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So it probably was not as late as 5 or 6-year-old me thought it was, but I remember being panicked that we would not get home in time and that we would miss the jolly fat man. Some Christmases, I remember spending Christmas, Christmas afternoon with my dad's parents, go across town in Fort Walton Beach, go and open Christmas presents with them. I remember in particular the, the Christmas that my grandfather received the Challenger Swiss Army knife. That's the one that's about that thick. It's got every tool known to man, supposedly. The, the, the sales pitch, I remember this, the sales pitch to the salesman was, there was a guy who built his whole house using nothing but the Challenger. I also learned that Christmas that Swiss Army knives come out of the package very, very, very sharp. Because this one had his hand open with it. I've thrown him under the bus twice today. My grandmother, my dad's mom, loved Christmas. In fact, one of the things that's been fantastic this year is I've gotten to listen and play some of the Christmas records that she played. Not, not a digital copy, the actual physical record that she would play. Chet Atkins' Christmas, the Conniff Singer's Christmas, some just good old-fashioned early 50, late 50s, early 60s, easy-listening Christmas albums. The other 
memories of Christmas. I remember coming home from Christmas in college <clears throat> one time. It was when I was in, in college in Mississippi, and I was coming home. And obviously, this wasn't Christmas Eve. I, I was never that person, you know. I mean, I was out of there. The second classes were over. Well, maybe not the second. At least the next morning. On my way home, and it was, it was late. It was, I remember it was dark probably about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and I'm on my way home, and I was only about two miles from home going down College Boulevard. College Boulevard is the worst street to drive on at 11 o'clock at night because at 11 o'clock at night, it is perfectly straight. There is no one on it, and the speed limit is 35 miles an hour. So needless to say, 19, 18-year-old Carter, who was not paying for his own insurance, got a little heavy with the foot, about the time I hit the entrance to school, the lights came on behind me, and I pulled over, and it was the sheriff's deputy. He asked me where I was going in such a hurry, and I said, I'm just on my way home for Christmas. Well, be careful. Drive slow. I can see from your license you're almost home. Let's make it home for Christmas, okay? Why was I in, in such a big hurry to get home for Christmas? Because for me, being home for Christmas felt like a big, festive, warm hug. I was, into, I was into warm hugs long before Olaf the snowman was. You know, when I was home for Christmas, there was no pressure to be anything. There was no pressure to perform in any way. I could just exist. When I was in college, Christmas meant coming home, getting my laundry done, and getting to read Lord of the Rings. Every Christmas. It was great. I was home for Christmas. And for many of you, you have very similar experiences. For many of you, home was a place to belong. It was a place that no matter what was going on in your life, no matter what you brought through the door with you, you knew that you were loved. But there are others in this room that might not have had that kind of Christmas experience. Maybe for you, being home for Christmas was not something that was accompanied by warm feelings and happy memories. Maybe for some of you, the idea of being home for Christmas actually brought with it a lot of pain and anxiety. Maybe home didn't feel like the place where you belonged, but a place where you felt like you didn't fit. And here's the amazing thing. Both experiences are valid. You know, the world is going to be really cynical, and the world's going to tell us that the, that the warm memories aren't real. That that's a bunch of fake nostalgia. That that's stuff that's, that, that's, that's not really real. After, it's just a Hallmark movie, right? But if you've got warm memories of being home at Christmas, it's real. But the other side of that is this. If you don't, that's real too. If you don't have that, that's okay. And the amazing thing is, is that, is that somehow in both of these experiences, we're able to look at them and we're able to see something special about Christmas and about the heart of Christmas and about what God is telling us about Christmas in these things, in these two very different 
experiences. Both experiences can teach us something about the tremendous joy of celebrating the birth of Jesus and the overwhelming love of God. This brings us to our first point. The heart of God is revealed through the arrival of Jesus. The heart of God is revealed through the arrival of Jesus. We, are, we all long to feel like we belong, like, like we are loved just as we are, like everything is as it should be. However, our longing for that often meets the reality of the world in which we live. All around us is brokenness. And many of us feel like we are alone. There's a reason why we often feel like we don't fit and we don't fit in. And here's the thing. I know that that is going to be the experience of just about every person in this room. And I know that because at some point you went home or are going to come home or going to go home for your 20th or your 25th or your 30th high school reunion and you're going to be sitting there talking to the dumb football player that you didn't have any time for when you were in high school who was the king of the school. Everybody loved him, and he's going to tell you how much he didn't fit in in high school. Or one time you're going to be home at Christmas, and you're going to decide, you know what, i got to get out of the house for a few minutes, and you go across the bridge to the Irish pub that's just on the other side of the bridge, and you're sitting there, and you run into a girl that you went into high school with who was, who was the queen of the school, went to all the parties, and she's going to sit there and tell you how cool everyone thought you were in high school when you felt like an absolute, utter loser that nobody paid any attention to. We all know that feeling of not fitting in. We all feel that way. There's a reason that we don't feel that we feel like we don't fit. There's a reason why there's it feels like there's a void within us. It's because this world is not our home. It is beautiful and it is fantastic and God created it and it is good, but it is not our home. We were made for something more. And God's heart is for us to awaken to this fact. The Christmas story appears at the beginning of the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Of the four gospels, three of them have the Christmas story. There's, There's the Christmas story that we read from Matthew. There's the summary of the Christmas story that we saw in the video. Many of you know that one by heart because you watch Charlie Brown Christmas every year and Linus recites it. There were, in those days, keeping watch over their flocks by night, shepherds. John has a Christmas story, too. It's a very different kind of Christmas story. But John tells the story of the light coming into the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a Christmas story. Only Mark doesn't have a Christmas story, and that's because Mark's doing his own thing, and there are reasons for that. But in the four Gospels... Three of them have this Christmas story, and each of them, in the way they tell the Christmas story, are trying to tell us something about Jesus and about about what he's doing and what he does. What Matthew is trying to do in his gospel, in his overall gospel, what Matthew is trying to do is to show to the world that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. What Matthew is trying to do is to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that had been prophesied about in Isaiah 
and in the Old Testament, and that in Jesus those prophecies were being fulfilled. That Jesus was the long-awaited fulfillment of God's heart and desire for his creation. Just prior to the portion of Matthew that we read is this genealogy of Jesus. Have any of you ever started reading the book of Matthew and thought to yourself, why in the world does Matthew start with this list of names? It can be really disconcerting. Hard to get through. Y'all are really glad I started at verse 18 because if I had started at verse 1, we all would have suffered as I tried to read all of those names. I don't care how many times I read them. I'm going to butcher at least three or four of them. But what Matthew is doing in that genealogy is he is showing how from the beginning of time to the arrival of Jesus, God is unfolding this plan to redeem his creation. That from the moment Adam and Eve set foot on the earth in the garden, God's plan was at work. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan, of this process that God has instituted to redeem his creation. And then we get to this portion that we read tonight. We meet this this guy named Joseph. We meet this guy named Joseph. Joseph is a good guy. He's engaged to be married to this woman named Mary, and all of a sudden, she turns up pregnant. And Joseph knows Joseph knows that the baby isn't his. There's no doubt in Joseph's mind. There's no like, well, maybe. No, Joseph knows. There's no way this kid's mine. Now, see, in, in the world, in the culture, in the, at the time, Joseph would have been totally within his rights to publicly shame her, to have her cast out of the community, even to have her killed. But see, Joseph... It tells us Joseph is a righteous man. Joseph is a good man. And so he's not going to do that. Now, just think for a second. You're engaged to somebody, and all evidence shows that they are not the person that you thought they were. You're going to be heartbroken, right? You're going to be upset. A lot of us would, would get pretty petty about it. And Joseph doesn't do that. He says, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to walk away from you. I'm going to do it quietly. I'm going to do it out of the spotlight. I'm going to do it in such a way that not everybody in town is talking about it. I'm going to do it in such a way to let you go your way and me go mine. And we're going to, we're going to just going to, we're going to go our separate ways. And we're going to do it quietly. And right as Joseph makes this decision, something happens. Now, until this point, this story has been a story that plays itself out every day in our world. Boy meets girl, boy gets engaged to girl, girl gets pregnant with some other dude's boy. They go their separate ways. I bet you sometime in the last year, that story has played itself out right here in Fairmont. So to this point in the story, it's a a really normal story, isn't it? Now the story gets weird. Now the story gets abnormal. Because what happens now is an angel shows up. We sang about angels today. 
And, and here's the thing, and, I, and I, don't, I don't want to ruin, I don't want to ruin your ideas here. I don't want to ruin It's a Wonderful Life for you. But despite what pop culture and It's a Wonderful Life would have you to believe, angels are not people who have died. Angels don't get their wings because they get sent back to earth by a nebula to help George Bailey understand that it is a wonderful life and the world is better off with him in it. It's a great movie. I love It's a Wonderful Life, but it's angelology theology is bad. No, angels aren't that. What angels are is angels are messengers from God. Angelos means messenger. The emperor had angelos, whom he would send. And when an angelos from the emperor showed up, you knew that he was speaking with the force of the emperor. When an angel shows up, when an angel of God shows up, thus saith the Lord. It is as if God himself is speaking. So an angel comes to Joseph, speaks to him in a dream, and convinces him that Mary's pregnancy is not a reason to call off their wedding. Rather, that Mary's pregnancy was something that was divine, something that was promised, and something that would change the world forever. In this, Matthew tells us two very important pieces of information. In this passage, Matthew shows two things that reveals the heart of God for us and the heart of Christmas for the world. The first is this. He tells us that the arrival of Jesus was to save people from their sins. The world makes Christmas about so many other things, but its true meaning falls squarely on God's dealing with our greatest limiting factor. You know, sin is any way that we miss the intention that God had for the world when he created it. Greed, gossip, unfaithfulness, hatred, racism, sexism, all fall short of the glory of God. And all of us, every single one of us, have been subject to sin's evil influence and have felt the effects of sin's rule and reign. God's heart of compassion moves him to send Jesus as the way of rescue for the world. The arrival of Jesus was to save people from their sins. The second thing that Matthew is showing us is he shows us that the arrival of Jesus was so that God could be with us. The arrival of Jesus was so that God could be with us. We give Jesus the name Emmanuel, God with us. This is a revolutionary thought at the time of Christ's birth. I want you to think about what you know about the, the religious thought of the Greek and Roman world. Where do the gods live? On Olympus. They're distant, they're remote, they're capricious, they're angry. In the case of Zeus, they're perhaps a little amorous toward human women. But for the most part, if you mess up, what happens? You get hit with a lightning bolt from Zeus, from the top of Olympus. The gods don't intervene. The gods don't walk with us. Every culture surrounding Bethlehem saw their gods as angry deities who punished and corrected their subjects from afar. But God so loved his broken creation that he wanted to come and be near to it. And so he became one of us with, with flesh and blood to mourn when we mourn, 
to hurt when we hurt and to weep when we weep. God identifies with us so that we can be given the opportunity to identify with him. We needed Jesus. We need Jesus. Someone once said it this way, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us an engineer. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us a song and dance man. But our greatest need was forgiveness, and so God sent us a Savior. A Savior who eliminates any barrier between us and God. A Savior who welcomes us into a safe place alongside a God who loves us. You know, it's easy for us to ask why. Why did God do this? Why did God send Jesus? Why did God put on flesh and come and dwell among us? Why? We look at a passage that perhaps we don't think of as a Christmas passage. We find an answer to that. John gives us the why of what took place in Bethlehem on that Christmas night. The beginning of John 3.16, we see this word for. In the Greek, it's the word gar. And gar means for, but it also means because. Because God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Because of God's great love for us, he sent Jesus. But we often forget that Jesus agreed to come. See, there's this weird thing that happens in the Trinity. And we're not going to get into Trinitarian theology tonight. Although St. Nicholas would really like it if we did. But we get into this because the Scripture talks about the Father sending the Son. And the Father sends the Son. But the Father and the Son are one. They're both God. And so God sends himself and he agrees to come. It's enough to make you a little crazy. But the answer is this, that that when God sends Jesus, Jesus comes. Jesus comes willingly. And when he came, he clearly lived with an unwavering commitment to his purpose to be here. Jesus himself says that he came to seek and to save the lost. Which brings us to point two. Jesus left his home to show us the way home. Jesus left his home to show us the way home. You know, we often think about what Jesus came to, but sometimes we don't think about what he left to get here. He left the the splendors of heaven to walk in brokenness of the earth. He laid aside his divinity and put on humanity. And he did it all for one reason, and that was to make a way for us to return home to be with God. 
when I was a, when I was a kid. Okay, scratch that. I have this tendency of wandering off. I did it when I was a child, and I do it now. They will tell you I did it when I was a child. Audrey will tell you I do it now. Bookstores are the worst. But comic stores are bad. Model shops are bad. Office supply stores are bad. Outdoor shops are I wander off. Now, as an adult, it's not that big a deal, right? Because I'm big enough and ugly enough, and most of the time I've got the car keys, so we're okay. I've also got this thing that I carry around these days. I can whip it out, and I can call Audrey, and I can say, where are you? And she goes, I am where you left me. I'm over in the X section. Okay. But when I was a kid, I didn't, didn't have these. When I was a kid, I was a lot smaller. When I was a kid, I'd get lost, and it could be kind of scary. And here's the thing. If I was with mom and dad, I knew the fastest way, the fastest way to be found again was to look for my dad. My dad's six, three and a half. He sort of sticks up above almost everybody else. All I had to do was look for my dad and I could get home. All I had to do was look for that, that head above all the other heads. Far too many of us are living lives with no direction, carelessly making decisions that put us in danger and keep us far from God. Christmas is God's way of pointing us back to the place where we belong. Christmas is God's way of leading us by His grace to our eternal family. We don't have to live our lives lost and broken because God's great love has made a way. John says that our key to finding our way back home is belief in Jesus. You you want to find your way home, look to Jesus. Just as when I was a small child, I looked to Dad. When we believe in Jesus, we are saved by him from perishing, from being lost forever. We're given a new life that will last into eternity in our true home. Belief in Jesus is more than an intellectual exercise. (coughs) Belief in Christ is to be so persuaded and so confident that our lives are transformed that our words and actions and thoughts come, become dictated by our faith, hope, love, and trust in Him. This is a work of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Spirit, not something that we can do on our own. This is why Jesus came to rescue us. This is why He does the work when we submit to Him. Which brings us to point three. Belief in Christ allows us to live today as well as for eternity. At the heart of Christmas is Jesus' invitation to join him and experience the full life that is available through him. Brothers and sisters, it is a full life that starts now, that starts when you believe in him. It doesn't start at some date in the future. 
Don't, don't buy into pie in the sky in the great by and by fire insurance religion. Belief in Christ is not about saving yourself from hell. It's about living the life that God promised you both now and in eternity. God has a plan, a desire for us. And, and he started a mission that began thousands of years ago in a small town and continues to this very day. Over the next several days, we're all going to get and receive a lot of gifts. Some of them are going to be awesome, and some of them are going to be like a little like, I don't know what to do with this. But the greatest gift that you could possibly receive or give over the coming days is this gift of Christ. It is by far the most valuable gift because it can save your life. It can save your soul. Sometimes I, I think of Jesus this way. I think of Jesus as, as being up in heaven and, and, and looking down and seeing the fact that the world is held under sway of the enemy. It's dark, sin, reigns, death, rules. But here's the thing. The enemy is asleep. Not unlike Hessian troops in Trenton, New Jersey on Christmas in 1776. Satan's asleep. So Jesus comes into the darkness, into the empire of sin and death, into the the rule and the reign and the kingdom of the enemy. And when he shows up, he inaugurates and begins a new kingdom, a kingdom of, of hope and peace and joy and love, a kingdom of light, not of darkness. church is a 2,000 year old resistance movement against sin and death. And it just so happens we have the king of the universe as our leader. That's the call. That's the call from Jesus. Join me. Join this, this resistance movement. Join this fight against sin and death. Join, join the forces of light. Join the rebellion against the evil empire. Join the resistance. Christmas is an invitation. Will you join Jesus in his work in the world of rescuing all of creation? Will you trust Jesus with your life and unapologetically believe in him? For God so loved the world that he sent 
Jesus in the form of a vulnerable baby to begin a powerful movement that is still active today. What began in this unassuming makeshift cradle, probably made of rough wood, ended on the rough wood of a Roman cross. But it ended victoriously in an empty tomb. And so, revel in the twinkling lights and the presents and the food and the sweets and the family, but remember the heart of Christmas. The heart that is the light that has come into the world. And brothers and sisters, I don't care how dark it is. The darkness can not win. It can't. Have you ever been in a dark room with just one weak little light in it? If you wait long enough, you can see everything in the room. All darkness is, is the absence of light. Darkness has no substance to itself. The crazy thing about light is it's both a wave and a particle. Light has mass. Light is stuff. Darkness is nothing. Darkness is a lie. The light is the truth. The light has come into the world and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so, we take a little bit of hope a little bit of peace, a little bit of joy, and a little bit of love. And the light comes into the world. In a few moments, we're going to sing Silent Night, and I hope you all got candles on your way in. What's going to happen is I'm going to I'm going to light my candle off of the Christ candle, and we're going to pass the light. Now, the folks who clean the floors want me to tell you something very important. The lit candle stays up and down. The unlit candle comes to the lit candle. Otherwise, wax is all over the floor, and I get to hear about it. Lit candle stays up and down. Unlit candle comes to lit candle. We clear? Okay. But here's the amazing thing. We're going to cut the lights. And we're going to see that the darkness cannot win. We're going to see with our own eyes what light does.